Welcome to Media Tribe. I'm Shauna Kinnear and this is the podcast that tells the story behind the story. It's an opportunity for you and I to step into the shoes of the most extraordinary media folk who cover the issues that matter most. Tony Robbins and all his kind of army of volunteers starts leading thousands and thousands of people out into the night. And it's like pitch black at this point, walking down this concrete slope. And at the end, you just see these like, I think it was like five rows of hot coals on fire at the bottom. And someone at the end, one of the volunteers pumps me up, like gives me a high five, says, are you ready? (laughs) In my head, I'm thinking, I can't believe I'm walking across hot coals for my job. Today I'm speaking to the New York Times UK investigative correspondent, Jane Bradley. Jane joined the Times this year, having previously worked for the investigations team at BuzzFeed, where she was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. Before that, Jane worked for the BBC. Jane Bradley, how on earth are you? I'm good. I'm so excited to be chatting with you. Likewise. I know it's so funny. Um, We have this great friendship, as we've both acknowledged, but it's always on social media. We've never actually met in person, even though we've worked on um, a film together. Um, But do you want to tell us all about you, Jane, and how you started in journalism? Um, Yeah, so it's kind of... it's kind of a traditional um, journey into journalism, kind of untraditional. Um, I was one of those really annoying kids who knew what they wanted to do like very early on. I wanted to be a journalist since I was a kid. Um, I kind of always loved reading and telling stories and I was very nosy um, as a kid and had I think, though my uh, my mum and my teachers might disagree, um, a kind of healthy disrespect for authority, which I think all journalists need to an extent. Um, and we kind of we moved around a lot when I was growing up. So I spent my early childhood in Bahrain and the UAE, which is where my biological father is from. And when we kind of came back to the UK, we moved around all over Yorkshire, um, sometimes kind of moving every few months. So I think I was always interested in different cultures and I became quite good at talking to people from different walks of life and making friends very quickly. But really, I think I decided I wanted to be a journalist for sure when I was about 11 or 12 and I attended um, the journalism summer school at my local paper, the Whole Daily Mail, which I'm sure your international listeners might not have heard of. Um, but it was it was a big deal in Hull. And I basically, after that, I was just fell in love with journalism and newspapers and was like, right, this is what I want to do. And it kind of changed my interest. Initially, I wanted to be a sports journalist and a music journalist. And Really, it was when I was in sixth form or college that I decided I wanted to get into investigative journalism. Um, I was in my sociology level class and they, my teacher basically showed this amazing panorama documentary by uh, Mark Daly, presented by Mark Daly on institutional, institutional racism in the Met Police. I've just never really seen anything like it and it kind of left me just I was you know I was just kind of in awe at the journalism in shock that that kind of racism goes on in you know England's biggest police force um and not only that but just the impact it had like it it led to these huge reforms across you know all of England's police forces and it real change what age were you at that point, Jane? So I was 17 then. 17. You're still very, very young. Still very young and annoyingly precocious to want to be an investigative journalist. 
um, and yeah, that was basically what got me kind of into it. And I, um, I decided to go to university, um, Goldsmiths in London, but I was kind of in two minds about going. I kind of was like, I just want to get started. I've always been very impatient and I knew what I wanted to do. I'd been kind of doing a lot of freelance writing for free and lots of internships. And I just thought, you know what, I'll go to London, I'll be able to do all these internships and work experience with a student loan covering my accommodation. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to afford to do it. Um, and see what happens. So just as about to finish my second year at university, um, I decided to apply for the BBC Journalism Trainee Scheme. Um, I didn't think there was a chance in hell that I'd get it, but I thought it'd be good experience for when I'm applying for jobs the year after. But I ended up getting a place and it was, they picked about 15 of us out of around 2,500 people. So I was just like, can't believe I've got on this scheme. I thought it was all like, posh Oxbridge people who'd get on it um I can't go back to uni this is too good an opportunity so I dropped out of uni and accepted the place when I was 20 on the uh BBC's trainee scheme and I thought look if it doesn't work out it was kind of a year's contract I'll always go back to uni and finish off my degree then um but somehow I managed to stay employed afterwards um so yeah I, st I started off in, in local news at Look North and BBC Radio Newcastle and kind of worked my way up from there. That's amazing I actually never knew that story Jane I also I studied at Goldsmiths um just for a year I did a journalism master's I didn't realize you were there too and that is why I guess you became one of the BBC's most or youngest senior um producers in there or broadcast journalists isn't that right I think that's an incredible journey and also I'm really heartened um to you know to learn back then that that the BBC were taking people who didn't come from Oxford and Cambridge and and who had beautiful northern accents so that's very very heartening beautiful is very kind of you <laughs> well I'm, I'm telling you this as a you know a midlander is from Ireland so um it's self-serving um so so Jane you spent years at the BBC BBC News and you went on to make Many Panoramas, which is, of course, the BBC's flagship investigative documentary series for our non-British audience. From BBC, you went to BuzzFeed, um, Buzz, the BuzzFeed investigations team. You know, do you want to tell our audience a bit more about, you know, that transition? Yeah, so I basically um, just decided to leave um, Panorama. Uh, this is about 2014. And I'd just gone freelance. I'd been freelancing for a few months. And I saw this uh, BuzzFeed advert look, looking for uh, basically a brand new team of investigative journalists in, the, in London, in the UK, to set up this new team. I have to admit, I was probably a bit scared skeptical at the start and maybe even a little bit arrogant being like BuzzFeed they don't really do investigations but you know what they've hired Heidi Blake who was my editor at the time and she's obviously a very well-known British investigative journalist um, from the Sunday Times so I was like all right you know what maybe maybe they are serious about doing investigations they are going to invest in it so I went for my first interview with Heidi and she basically sold me on the BuzzFeed mission she was just like look we're going to set up a brand new investigations team. You're going to have unlimited time and resources to work on like really big, important stories. You're not going to be, you know, dragged into daily news stuff. And anyone who's worked in journalism knows that kind of resources and time is so rare and valuable um, that I was just like, there's nowhere else I know that's doing that. So I was left that meeting, having gone in a bit 
blasé and not sure if I wanted the job being like I have to get that job wow <laughs> and I guess because you're right Jane like that was kind of at the time that be- or that BuzzFeed was known more so for its list you know listicles and, and a bit of clickbait isn't that right so so that was quite a big jump from you know somewhere that's I guess prestigious as, as BBC Panorama so fair play to you yeah a lot of people were kind of like why are you leaving Panorama for BuzzFeed like so many people just didn't understand why I was kind of making that jump but I think within a year or two of the team being up and running they saw that okay you are bringing in some really big stories and BuzzFeed does seem to be doing some good stuff here Um, and for me when I worked at the BBC I ended up mostly working in TV Um, it's not I I never wanted to be on camera like not with my vowels and I hate being in front of a camera anyway Um, so I ended up in TV just because that was where the money was for doing investigations and everyone you know most people know investigations are really expensive they're really risky so for me like throughout my whole career I haven't been bothered whether it's been TV, radio, digital, newspaper. I just wanted to go somewhere where they were investing in investigative journalism and gave you the time and the space and the money um, to kind of do really big, important public interest investigations that matter and hopefully, you know, can make some kind of impact. And you did exactly that at BuzzFeed. I mean, you've a a string and such an amazing catalogue of investigations under your belt um, since working there. And now, of course, you're investigations correspondent at The New York Times, which is obviously the pinnacle of amazing journalism. So, So you've had really an extraordinary career. So, Jane, my next question, the big question of the interview, whether, which I'm sure you do, have a story or kind of investigation that you're rather proud of and that had impact along the way. And I'm very much hoping you'll talk to us all about your Russia and Russian intrigue. Yeah, that was definitely one of the, I think, hardest and strangest, most surreal stories I've ever done. Um, But yeah, so when um, probably our biggest story at BuzzFeed while I was there, at least, was this kind of two year on and off investigation that we did into 14 uh, suspected Russian linked assassinations that happened in the UK. It started with just um, a bunch of documents that came in from the ex-wife of this guy called Scott Young who was this kind of super fixer to all the oligarchs, Boris Brezovsky, etc. And initially it wasn't about Russia at all. It was about how the British police, the Met Police in particular in this case, had basically failed to investigate all of these suspicious deaths that had happened in the UK. Um, And Russia didn't come into it at the start. But all of these men, all these 14 deaths, had either kind of directly made an enemy of Putin or other powerful Russian figures, or they were linked to someone who had. in all of these cases, you know, almost all of these guys had reported death threats or assassination attempts or being targeted by Russian security services or the mafia. And obviously in Russia, that's often there's often a crossover there. It's hard to tell them apart. Um, but in every case, the police basically ruled that every case wasn't suspicious often quickly and without carrying out basic forensic tests or like witness interviews, even CCTV checks. Um And then we had this big breakthrough really towards the end of the investigation, about three months before we published, um, where my colleague Jason Leopold um, had uh, got hold of uh, this document or this information about this document from US intelligence sources, which basically listed every single one of those 14 men who died as 
possible or suspected assassinations, either by the Kremlin or Russian mafia. Yeah, so that was, I'll kind of, I'll never forget when that, that intel came in. That was the big breakthrough. And my editor, Heidi and Mark Schuves had kind of been having this meeting. And Jason Leopold suddenly signaled us going, every single name is on that list in the UK. There were other, there were other names not in the UK who weren't on the list. Um, and Heidi and uh, Mark Schuves came out of the meeting and we, and we said, have you seen this message? And their jaws just kind of hit the floor. Um, and that was a turning point in that investigation. But I, the reason why I kind of want to talk about that story isn't just that it was a big success in terms of impact, but it was kind of lessons I learned as um, a journalist along the way. Just before you go on, though, Jane, so, so as a kind of a headline as to what you and your team at BuzzFeed um, investigated, basically, as you say, there were there were 14 what now look like murders or assassinations potentially directed from the Kremlin in on British soil, whereby British authorities decided as a policy to kind of adopt this willful blindness and just turn a blind eye. And, and you know, they, they said that um, some of these were suicides and and, and and various other, you know, they they, they kind of had an excuse for every death. Whereas what your team discovered and, and showed was that that was, you know, au contraire, um, these people were were most likely assassinated. And, and then, of course, the US authorities confirmed that as well. Yeah, so just just a couple of important points there. Um, that's basically kind of what happened. However, it was the kind of the premise was that these were assassinated either by someone linked to the Kremlin or the Russian mafia. Um, and it was kind of the main upshot of that was not that every single one of these deaths were definitely Russian linked assassinations. I think that's highly unlikely, but it was that every single one of these potential Russian assassinations had kind of been failed to be investigated by the authorities, either the police or the government. And some of that was incompetence. Generally, it's incompetence rather than conspiracy theory, I find, in this work. Um, and some of them was uh, kind of a willful um, looking away, basically, from the British authorities. And we spoke to several, of that 17 current and former intelligence um, officials who basically said that, there was this kind of general policy um, in the UK government at the time um, that it was too politically difficult to look into um, anything to do with Russia, pretty much, or the Russian state um, because of the amount of money coming into London in particular from Russia and just kind of, you know, how much of a power Russia is and how politically difficult it would be. Okay, so basically the Brits were anxious, you know, not to inflame diplomatic tensions with Russia. And your investigation came out in 2017. It was a seven-parter. So that was before the Salisbury poisonings, um, so w- which kind of changed everything, I think. Um, and also really worth noting at that time, Theresa May, who the majority of her audience will know because she was recently the prime minister, but back then she was the home secretary. Isn't that right? Um, so so sorry, I, I did interrupt you. You said the important part of your investigation is that you learned, um, I'm sure you learned a hell of a lot during that. Um, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but just so, you know, we, the, the audience, if they haven't read your expose, that they, you know, have, have a clear idea of, of what we're talking about. Yeah, no, if they haven't read all 40,000 words. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you summed it up perfectly there. Um, (laughs) 
and you're right about the lesson kind of the when you mentioned Salisbury that kind of ties into the impact um lesson that I learned um kind of particularly doing investigations so when we first published this story you know we'd spent two years on this we'd spoken to like well over 100 sources we'd gone we'd comb through 250 boxes of documents crime scene evidence cctv and we were kind of so nervous when we published it but excited thinking okay this is a you know this is a big story let's hope it lands um and and we published it and pretty much not complete silence but almost silence from the rest of the press and kind of um impact in terms of any investigations being reopened and things like that I think it made like page five of the times and a couple of other smaller smaller outlets picked up but really this investigation would spent so much time working on kind of just seemed to disappear there was not really any impact and it was it was disappointing we'd spent a lot of time and money um for BuzzFeed to spend a lot of money on this we'd spent a lot of time and kind of you put all your eggs in one basket with you're an investigative journalist working on you know one story out all year which is what we'd done and it wasn't until the Salisbury poisoning attacks happened that suddenly it just changed overnight so so as soon as kind of reports started breaking about the attempted poisoning of uh, Sergei Skripal and his daughter. Everyone was just kind of calling us up um, to kind of appear on uh, BBC News, Sky News, CNN. Suddenly everyone was quoting um, our reporting, being like, hang on, did it BuzzFeed literally warn about this exact thing happening six months or so ago? And suddenly, yeah, all these important people, all these politicians, all these um, really senior police investigators were saying we should reopen the cases, re-examine the evidence, something needs to be done in it. And it was even kind of quoted in the recent Russia report published by the UK government a month ago. And then suddenly we were we were shortlisted or winning so many journalism awards, um, including the Pulitzer uh, shortlisting which I st- is still surreal to this day um, so for me it was a real lesson and, and this applies not just to I think our Russia investigation but generally investigative journalism like it's very rare you publish one big story and the impact happens immediately right you've got to keep chipping away and publishing multiple stories or you until the rest of the press start picking it up because our power is in numbers otherwise people in power can kind of ignore a story and kind of wait for the news cycle to carry away so I think some of the biggest investigations Windrush for example you know that wasn't just one story that or even phone hacking that blew the whole thing open and as an investigative journalist I think honestly like the biggest talent we've got is just we're bloody stubborn and (laughs) determined and you've just got to keep going and often just the success is just keep going for a month or a couple of stories longer or something and that makes all the difference well, I think that's a great lesson, Jane. That's really interesting. And I, I remember reading it, your 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 pieces back in the day in 2017. And one huge thing that stuck out to me back then and, and when I was rereading this weekend was the fact that Russia gave assassinators a license to kill enemies of the state on, on foreign soil back in 2006. 2006, yeah. That blew my mind. And, and like that to me is a story. Like how, you know, how is that okay? And then the big, big question of, of course, 
this is why, you know, I, I get that they're short in resources within the police, but, you know, why didn't MI6 investigate all of these murders, which clearly were suspicious at the time? And, and I think you guys answered that question really well. Well, that's huge impact, Jane. Um, that 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 is a great answer. You obviously have done loads more stories with BuzzFeed that have had huge impact as well. Is there anything else from your kind of catalogue there that you were really proud of back in the day? So the other story that I'm probably most proudest of that I've done um, was one where we basically unmasked two members of the ISIS execution cell known as the Beatles. And I did that with my colleague, Adam Goldman, um, who's now at the New York Times. And we basically unmasked two of these guys as Alexander Cote and El Shafi El Sheikh, who were two young West London guys. And they were part of this kind of notorious terror cell, which was known for filming these really horrific beheadings and were kind of you know, pr- probably the most wanted terror group in the world at the time and were being hunted by the authorities all over the world. Um, and they were headed up by Jihadi John um, or Muhammad Amwazi. I do remember that one, Jane, as well. I remember you speaking to one of their mums. Um, uh, so that was, a mm. yeah, that was a very, very moving piece as well. Well, Jane, another big question is whether there is some type of crazy moment within your career um, that you'd like to tell our audience about that perhaps, you know, your colleagues don't know about or, you know, something you haven't really delved into before that's slightly outrageous. So I think probably the craziest experience I've had in this job was doing a kind of undercover firewalk at midnight um, in the name of journalism. And that was on a story, um, kind of a seven part investigation that I did into Tony Robbins, who is, for those of you who don't know, is described as kind of the world's most famous self-help guru. He's a millionaire. He, um, he travels around the world holding these kind of seminars which are filled with thousands and thousands of people paying thousands and thousands of pounds or dollars and he's a massive deal he's kind of worked with the likes of Donald Trump, Oprah, the Kardashians, Bill Clinton and when we first started investigating him which I did with my um, then colleague Katie Baker one of the first steps was obviously kind of understanding how he worked. So um, just to go back a bit, the some the whistleblowers or the people who kind of came to us with the story, they had got in touch alleging that he alleged accusing him of uh, of serious sexual misconduct against his followers and against junior female employees, so personal assistants, sales reps. Um, and he was accused of um, kind of groping his employees, of making inappropriate sexual comments and touching, of uh, sending his kind of bodyguards, his security into the crowd at these events to try and um, basically solicit attractive young women to go up to his hotel room rooms and things like that. So uh, this started with one tip. And before I kind of spoke to, in the end, we spoke to well over, I think it was around a dozen women um, in total who kind of all had similar types of stories. But at the start of this, um, I kind of wanted to, you know, do my research properly and kind of find out, okay, what what does he teach at these seminars? So my bosses decided that I would go attend um, one of his seminars a couple of years ago this was now and I mean what what did you learn at one of these seminars Jane well what did I learn um it was definitely even the firewalker side it was one of the craziest 
things I've ever done in my life. Hold on. When you say fire walk. No, literally walking over hot coals at midnight. <laughs> oh, I thought it was like some type of euphemism for, for like a rite of passage. I mean, my, my work often feels like a fire walk, but no, this was an actual fire walk. <laughs> okay can you tell I think you need to tell us a bit more about that I mean I I will never forget I will never forget the vision of as I kind of walked down towards it so this was the end of um I think it was one of his first days of his seminar in the Excel Center in the London Docklands by the River Thames and right at the end he kind of pumps everyone up getting ready for this big fire walk right at the end and the aim is to kind of improve your confidence and believe in yourself and not be scared anymore and the kind of the seminar started like pretty bizarrely for any seminars I've been to where there's lots of like hugging and high-fiving and massaging like not COVID friendly at all now um but it was kind of like being at a rave and it could just constantly be this kind of pumping music these bright lights these like dancers who would come on um, and then it'd switch to suddenly people talking about or thinking about their greatest fears, their greatest mistakes, and the lights would go out and I would be walking across the floor and seeing people laid on the ground, banging their heads um, literally against the floor or a wall and in floods of tears. It was a really, um, it was a really intense um, seminar to start with. And there was a lot of very vulnerable people there. And one of the concerns our whistleblowers had raised was that there were all these people with depression and mental health issues who were kind of brought into this very intense experience um, and weren't getting the kind of support, the medical help, et cetera, they needed when breakdowns um, inevitably occurred um, uh, sometimes. So anyway, at the end of this crazy day, there's this firewalk and uh, Tony Robbins and all his kind of army of volunteers or his army of helpers kind of starts leading thousands and thousands of people out into the night. And it's like pitch black at this point, walking down this concrete slope. And at the end, you just see these like, I think it was like five rows of uh, hot coals on fire at the bottom. And you go and you line up and everyone's chanting, everyone's kind of singing and uh it's kind of almost trance-like and then you kind of <laughs> I had to walk to the end of this and someone at the end one of the volunteers pumps me up like gives me a high five says are you ready <laughs> in my head I'm thinking I can't believe I'm walking across hot coals for my job um but I said yes I'm ready and you kind of you run across and then there's a bucket of water and they cool you off and make sure there's not any blisters or anything and that's the end of your first day learning from uh Tony Robbins, a self-help guru. Wow. And I'm assuming you're in your bare feet at this point, Jane. That's absolutely, absolutely outrageous. I mean, that is hilarious. All in the name of journalism. And, and again, it's why you're such a great journalist. I hope your bosses at the New York Times are listening in and thinking, wow, this girl is dedicated. <laughs> I don't know if my bosses at the New York Times would sign off on it. <laughs> Exactly. It, it feels definitely like more of a BuzzFeed thing. Maybe the insurers never knew about that. That's just simply outrageous and completely bonkers. So thanks a million for sharing that with us. And thanks a million generally for, for coming on the podcast, Jane. And I'm sure you'll in inspire many more people to, to follow a path into journalism. Your, your journey isn't totally conventional, but it was brilliant to hear all about it. Thank you so much, Jane. Thank you so much for having me. If you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating, that would be really appreciated. 
Also, get in touch on social media at Shauna on Twitter or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson. 